Section 8 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Wednesday, 1st September. I awaked very early. I began to imagine that the landlord, being about to emigrate, might murder us to get our money and lay it upon the soldiers in the barn. Such groundless fears will arise in the mind before it has resumed its vigour after sleep. Dr. Johnson had had the same kind of ideas, for he told me afterwards that he considered so many soldiers, having seen us, would be witnesses, should any harm be done, and that circumstance, I suppose, he considered as a security. When I got up, I found him sound asleep in his miserable sty, as I may call it, with a coloured handkerchief tied round his head. With difficulty could I awaken him. It reminded me of Henry the Fourth's fine soliloquy on sleep, for there was here as uneasy a palate as the poet's imagination could possibly conceive. A red coat of the 15th Regiment, whether officer or only sergeant, I could not be sure, came to the house in his way to the mountains to shoot deer, which it seems the laird of Glen Morrison does not hinder anybody to do. Few indeed can do them harm. We had him to breakfast with us. We got away about eight. McQueen walked some miles to give us a convoy. He had, in 1745, joined the Highland Army at Fort Augustus and continued in it till after the Battle of Culloden. As he narrated the particulars of that ill-advised but brave attempt, I could not refrain from tears. There is a certain association of ideas in my mind upon that subject, by which I am strongly affected. The very highland names, or the sound of a bagpipe, will stir my blood and fill me with a mixture of melancholy and respect for courage, with pity for an unfortunate and superstitious regard for antiquity, and thoughtless inclination for war, in short, with a crowd of sensations with which sober rationality has nothing to do. We passed through Glen's Hill with prodigious mountains on each side. We saw where the battle was fought in the year 1719. Dr. Johnson owned he was now in a scene of as wild nature as he could see, but he corrected me sometimes in my inaccurate observations. There, said I, is a mountain like a cone. Johnson, no, sir, it would be called so in a book, and when a man comes to look at it, he sees it is not so. It is indeed pointed at the top, but one side of it is larger than the other. Another mountain I called immense. Johnson, no, it is no more than a considerable protuberance. We came to a rich green valley, comparatively speaking, and stopped a while to let our horses rest and eat grass. We soon afterwards came to Outnesheel, a kind of rural village, a number of cottages being built together, as we saw all along in the highlands. We passed many miles this day without seeing a house, but only little summer huts called shielings. Even Campbell, servant to Mr. Murchison, factor to the laird of MacLeod in Glenelg, ran along with us to-day. He was a very obliging fellow. At Outness Hill we sat down on a green turf seat at the end of a house. 
they brought us out two wooden dishes of milk which we tasted. One of them was frothed like a syllabub. I saw a woman preparing it with such a stick as is used for chocolate and in the same manner. We had a considerable circle about us, men, women and children, all Macross, Lord Seaforth's people. Not one of them could speak English. I observed to Dr. Johnson it was much the same as being with a tribe of Indians. Johnson, yes, sir, but not so terrifying. I gave all who chose it snuff and tobacco. Governor Troupeau had made us buy a quantity at Fort Augustus and put them up in small parcels. I also gave each person a bit of wheat bread which they had never tasted before. I then gave a penny apiece to each child. I told Dr. Johnson of this, upon which he called to Joseph and our guides for change for a shilling, and declared that he would distribute among the children. Upon this being announced in Erse, there was a great stir. Not only did some children come running down from neighbouring huts, but I observed one black-haired man, who had been with us all along, had gone off and returned, bringing a very young child. My fellow-traveller then ordered the children to be drawn up in a row, and he dealt about his copper, and made them and their parents all happy. The poor Macras, whatever may be their present state, were of considerable estimation in the year 1715, when there was a line in a song, And all oh, the brave Macras are coming! There was great diversity in the faces of the circle around us. Some were as black and wild in their appearance as any American savages whatever. One woman was as comely almost as the figure of Sappho, as we see it painted. We asked the old woman, the mistress of the house, where we had the milk, which, by the by, Dr. Johnson told me, for I did not observe it myself, was built not of turf but of stone, what we should pay. She said what we pleased. One of our guides asked her in Erse if a shilling was enough. She said yes, but some of the men bade her ask more. This vexed me, because it showed a desire to impose upon strangers, as they knew that even a shilling was high payment. The woman, however, honestly persisted in her first price, so I gave her half a crown. Thus we had one good scene of life uncommon to us. The people were very much pleased, gave us many blessings, and said they had not had such a day since the old Laird of Macleod's time. Dr. Johnson was much refreshed by this repast. He was pleased when I told him he would make a good chief. He said, Were I a chief? I would dress my servants better than myself, and knock a fellow down if he looked saucy to a MacDonald in rags. But I would not treat men as brutes. I would let them know why all my clan were to have attention paid to them. I would tell my upper servants why, and make them tell the others. We rode on well till we came to the high mountain called the Rattakin, by which time both Dr. Johnson and the horses were a good deal fatigued. It is a terrible steep to climb, notwithstanding the road is formed slanting along it. However, we made it out. On the top of it we met Captain MacLeod of Balmanoch, a Dutch officer who had come from Skye, riding with his sword slung across him. He asked, Is this Mr. Boswell? Which is a proof that we were expected. Going down the hill on the other side was no easy task. As Dr. Johnson was a great weight, 
the two guides agreed that he should ride the horses alternately. Hayes were the two best, and the doctor would not ride but upon one or other of them, a black or a brown. But as Hay complained much after ascending the Radakin, the doctor was prevailed with to mount one of Vass's greys. As he rode upon it downhill, it did not go well, and he grumbled. I walked on a little before, but was excessively entertained with the method taken to keep him in good humour. Hay led the horse's head, talking to Dr. Johnson as much as he could, and, having heard him in the forenoon express a pastoral pleasure on seeing the goats browsing, just when the doctor was uttering his displeasure, the fellow cried with a very highland accent, "'See such pretty goats!' Then he whistled, "Whoo!" and made them jump. Little did he conceive what Dr. Johnson was. Here now was a common, ignorant Highland clown, imagining that he could divert, as one does a child, Dr. Samuel Johnson. The ludicrousness, absurdity, and extraordinary contrast between what the fellow fancied and the reality was truly comic. It grew dusky, and we had a very tedious ride for what was called five miles, but I'm sure would measure ten. We had no conversation. I was riding forward to the inn at Glenelg, on the shore opposite to Skye, that I might take proper measures, before Dr. Johnson, who was now advancing in dreary silence, Hay leading his horse, should arrive. Vass also walked by the side of his horse, and Joseph followed behind, as therefore he was thus attended, and seemed to be in deep meditation, I thought there could be no harm in leaving him for a little while. He called me back with a tremendous shout, and was really in a passion with me for leaving him. I told him my intentions, but he was not satisfied, and said, Do you know, I should as soon have thought of picking a pocket as doing so. Boswell, I am diverted with you, sir. Johnson, sir, I could never be diverted with incivility. Doing such a thing makes one lose confidence in him who has done it, as one cannot tell what he may do next. His extraordinary warmth confounded me so much that I justified myself but lamely to him, yet my intentions were not improper. I wished to get on, to see how we were to be lodged, and how we were to get a boat, all which I thought I could best settle myself, without his having any trouble. To apply his great mind to minute particulars is wrong. It is like taking an immense balance, such as kept on keys for weighing cargoes of ship, to weigh a guinea. I knew I had neat little scales which would do better, and that his attention to everything which falls in his way, and his uncommon desire to be always in the right, would make him weigh if he knew of the particulars. It was right, therefore, for me to weigh them, and let him have them only in effect. I, however, continued to ride by him, finding he wished I should do so. As we passed the barracks at Bonera, I looked in them wistfully, as soldiers have always everything in the best order. But there was only a sergeant and a few men there. We came on to the inn at Glenelg. There was no provender for our horses, so they were sent to grass, with a man to watch them. A maid showed us upstairs into a room damp and dirty, with bare walls, a variety of bad smells, a coarse black greasy fur table, and forms of the same kind. 
and out of a wretched bed started a fellow from his sleep, like Edgar in King Lear. Poor Tom's a cold. This inn was furnished with not a single article that we could either eat or drink, but Mr. Murchison, factor to the laird of MacLeod in Glenelg, sent us a bottle of rum and some sugar with a polite message to acquaint us that he was very sorry that he did not hear of us till we had passed his house, otherwise he should have insisted on our sleeping there that night, and that if he were not obliged to set out for Inverness early next morning, he would have waited upon us. Such extraordinary attention from this gentleman to entire strangers deserves the most honourable commemoration. Our bad accommodation here made me uneasy and almost fretful. Dr. Johnson was calm. I said he was so from vanity. Johnson, no, sir, it is from philosophy. It pleased me to see that the rambler could practice so well his own lessons. I resumed the subject of my leaving him on the road, and endeavoured to defend it better. He was still violent upon that head, and said, Sir, had you gone on, I was thinking I should have returned with you to Edinburgh, and then have parted from you, and never spoken to you more. I sent for fresh hay, with which we made beds for ourselves, each in a room equally miserable. Like Wolfe, we had a choice of difficulties. Dr. Johnson made things easier by comparison. At McQueen's last night, he observed, that few were so well lodged in a ship. Tonight, he said, we were better than if we had been upon the hill. He lay down buttoned up in his great coat. I had my sheets spread on the hay, and my clothes and great coat laid over me by way of blankets. Thursday, 2nd September. I had slept ill. Dr. Johnson's anger had affected me much. I considered that without any bad intention I might suddenly forfeit his friendship, and was impatient to see him this morning. I told him how uneasy he had made me by what he had said, and reminded him of his own remark at Aberdeen upon old friendships being hastily broken off. He owned he had spoken to me in passion, that he would not have done what he threatened, and that if he had he should have been ten times worse than I that forming intimacies would indeed be liming the water, were they liable to such sudden dissolution, and he added, Let's think no more on't. Boswell, Well then, sir, I shall be easy. Remember I am to have fair warning in case of any quarrel. You are never to spring a mine upon me. It was absurd in me to believe you. Johnson, You deserved about as much as to believe me from night to morning. After breakfast we got into a boat for Skye. It rained much when we set off, but cleared up as we advanced. One of the boatmen who spoke English said that a mile at land was two miles at sea. I then observed that from Glenelg to Armadale in Skye, which was our present course, and is called Twelve, was only six miles. But this he could not understand. Well, said Dr. Johnson, Never talk to me of the native good sense of the Highlanders. Here is a fellow who calls one mile two, and yet cannot comprehend that twelve such imaginary miles make in truth but six. We reached the shore of Armadale before one o'clock. Sir Alexander MacDonald came down to receive us. He 
He and his lady, formerly Miss Bosville of Yorkshire, were then in a house built by a tenant at this place, which is in the district of Slate, the family mansion here having been burned in Sir Donald MacDonald's time. The most ancient seat of the chief of the MacDonalds in the Isle of Skye was at Dunton, where there are the remains of a stately castle. The principal residence of the family is now at Mugstot, at which there is a considerable building. Sir Alexander and Lady MacDonald had come to Armadale in their way to Edinburgh, where it was necessary for them to be soon after this time. Armadale is situated on a pretty bay of the narrow sea which flows between the mainland of Scotland and the Isle of Skye. In front there is a grand prospect of the rude mountains, of Moidart and Noidart. Behind are hills gently rising and covered with a finer verdure than I expected to see in this climate, and the scene is enlivened by a number of little clear brooks. Sir Alexander MacDonald, having been an Eton scholar, and being a gentleman of talents, Dr Johnson had been very well pleased with him in London. But my fellow-traveller and I were now full of the old Highland spirit, and were dissatisfied at hearing of racked rents and emigration, and finding a chief not surrounded by his clan. Dr Johnson said, Sir, the Highland chief should not be allowed to go further south than Aberdeen. A strong-minded man like Sir James MacDonald may be improved by an English education, but in general they will be tamed into insignificance. We found here Mr. Jaynes of Aberdeenshire, a naturalist. Jaynes said he had been at Dr. Johnson's in London, with Ferguson the astronomer. Johnson, it is strange that in such distant places I should meet with anyone who knows me. I should have thought I might hide myself in sky. Friday, 3rd September. This day proving wet, we should have passed our time very uncomfortably, had we not found in the house two chests of books, which we eagerly ransacked. After dinner, when I alone was left at table with the few Highland gentlemen who were of the company, having talked with very high respect of Sir James MacDonald, they were all so much affected as to shed tears. One of them was Mr. Donald MacDonald, who had been Lieutenant of Grenadiers in the Highland Regiment, raised by Colonel Montgomery, now Earl of Eglintoon, in the war before last. One of those regiments which the late Lord Chatham prided himself in having brought from the mountains of the north, by doing which he contributed to extinguish in the Highlands the remains of disaffection to the present royal family. From this gentleman's conversation, I first learnt how very popular his colonel was among the Highlanders, of which I had such continued proofs during the whole course of my tour, that on my return I could not help telling the noble earl himself that I did not before know how great a man he was. We were advised by some persons here to visit Rasie, in our way to Dunvegan, the seat of the Laird of MacLeod. Being informed that the Reverend Mr. Donald McQueen was the most intelligent man in Skye, and having been favoured with a letter of introduction to him by the learned Sir James Foolis, I sent it to him by an express, and requested he would meet us at Rasie, and at the same time enclosed a letter to the Laird of MacLeod, informing him that we intended in a few days to have the honour of waiting on him at Dunvegan. 
Dr. Johnson this day endeavoured to obtain some knowledge of the state of the country, but complained that he could get no distinct information about anything from those with whom he conversed. Saturday, 4th September My endeavours to rouse the English-bred chieftain, in whose house we were, to the feudal and patriarchal feelings, proved ineffectual. Dr. Johnson this morning tried to bring him to our way of thinking. Johnson, were I in your place, sir, in seven years I would make this an independent island. I would roast oxen whole and hang out a flag as a signal to the Macdonalds to come and get beef and whisky. Sir Alexander was still starting difficulties. Johnson, nay, sir, if you are born to object, I have done with you. Sir, I would have a magazine of arms. Sir Alexander, they would rust. Johnson, let there be men to keep them clean. Your ancestors did not use to let their arms rust. We attempted in vain to communicate to him a portion of our enthusiasm. He bore with so polite a good nature our warm and what might, some might call gothic expostulations on this subject that I should not forgive myself were I to record all that Dr. Johnson's ardour led him to say. This day was little better than a blank. End of section 8